0: All right. Ready, Freddie? Ready. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to episode four of Ravel Rouser. My, oh, yeah. My name is Allie. My name is Rose. And today we're going to talk about fostering and adoption. So yes. we decided last week that we were going to dedicate this month to like women's rights and alternatives and kind of what's out there just because of everything that goes on in October. Um, and last week when we were talking about abortion, it brought up the adoption and fostering and how when it comes to alternatives for moms who are having babies that, that may not be able to take care of them, it, it's really not as affordable or accessible as people like to think it is. Yes. Yes. So we can get right into that. I am all for fostering an adoption. However, I think that it needs to be. It's regulated really well. It just it does need to be more accessible. We need to find a way for it to be more of an option for parents to go through.
1: Yeah, for me, the it's. The biggest issue for me is just the audacity or even the ignorance of people that, you know, want to use it as an uh, alternative to abortion, you know, where it's like, oh, well, why don't you just put it up for adoption? Right. And there's so much more than just the act of putting the child up that goes into it, because there's still medical costs while you're pregnant. There's still the emotional and physical toll that you're going to go through when you're pregnant. And of course, full disclosure, like I have never had children. I never plan on having children. I do not have a maternal instinct in my body as far as I'm concerned. And I'm a very selfish person and don't think that I would be a good mother. So, (laughs) And that
0: itself is very selfless.
1: As you keep telling me, but I still don't. um, I I just don't see it as part of my life plan. Right.
0: And not everybody does.
1: Yeah. And I think we really need to remove the stigma of, you know, women being single in their later life or not wanting children. Like, I think it's really, really time that society as a whole shifts their focus and realizes that, you know, regardless of what certain groups of people want to think, women are here for a lot more than just pumping out babies.
0: Right. Like, we don't live in the 30s anymore. Come on. Exactly. We, we, I mean... We live in the 20s, but the 2020s. <laughs> yes, so, um, and that is a huge, especially when you get into to religious aspects of it too. Like, I grew up Christian, and that's it's all about the family and having a family, and and so it, once you get into religious families as well, it's a huge thing. Um, yeah, and they make it a big deal when somebody's like, "No, I don't want kids." What? Yeah. Why not? because it just doesn't fit with what I want. Okay.
1: Like, yeah. And they're almost shamed after that. And it's just, it's so sad because these are people that could, you know, these are women that could potentially go into medicine and find the cure for cancer right? or, you know, go into like any field they wanted and Excel and they're being told at a young age, well, you shouldn't be focused on that. You should be wanting to have a family.
0: Right. And for everybody saying well, we're not told that at a young age, okay. The like one of the top toys for for little girls are baby dolls, mm-hmm. like baby dolls and Barbies, all of which teach role play of a family dynamic. Yeah, although Barbies now they've gotten to where where parents started teaching them like communication and how to hang out with friends, but you figure you still have Barbie and Ken who are the adults, and then you have Kelly and all her little friends, so it's still very much based around a family that has kids or a little sister or whatever.
1: Yeah, and I think a large portion of that, too, is the the over-focus of gender and quote-unquote gender norms that is placed on children. Like, clothes don't have a gender, toys don't have a gender, like, we need to stop with this whole well, you, I, I perceive you as this gender, and so this is what your life should be. Just stop. Just let kids be kids and figure out what their gender is and what they want on their own. Right.
0: Seriously. Because, like, if Libby was to come to me and be like, hey, mom, I want to be, a, let's see, a, a firefighter. You know what, kid? Freaking do that, because I used to want to be a firefighter, too. So, like, get on you, bro.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: And then on the flip side, if if my nephew came up and was like, "Well, I want to go be a nurse," you be a nurse, man. Gee, yeah. the best nurses I've had have been men.
1: Yeah, me too, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. they have great bedside manners. Plus, they're funny.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a um, there's an engineer. And we're, we're kind of sidetracking where this conversation is going, but I think it's okay because this is kind of a conversation that needs to be had too. There's an engineer, I think, in Wales. I don't know for sure it's Wales, but he, for the last 15 years, has gone to work in a skirt and stiletto heels. Nice. And this man can walk better in stiletto heels than I could ever hope to. So I'm kind of jealous of him um but his whole point is you know like I find it comfortable and find stilettos comfortable like who is right nobody finds stilettos comfortable what yeah um but he finds skirts comfortable and he thinks he looks good and, and to his credit he does like he's got amazing legs um and he's flat out said he's like you know in the beginning yeah like in board meetings people would would have a hard time with it and he's like but it it didn't stop my career, didn't stop my progression because I'm comfortable with it. And this is who I am. And, you know, he gets stereotyped or like pushed into a corner of like, oh, well, admit you're gay or admit this. And he's like, I'm not, I just, I like skirts and I don't find them to be specific to women. Right. And I'm like, you know what, dude, power to you. That is awesome. Historically, they're not. Mm -hmm. Like historically skirts are not just for women. So, no yeah. and the whole concept of like blue being the boy's color and pink being the green uh, girl's color it's was awesome. not originally the case i believe it flipped in the 50s yeah so yeah there's there's a lot of societal themes wrong with there people's viewpoints like if it's cute just wear it exactly if you want to,
0: just wear it. Like, come on. I wear ball shorts as often as I can. And those predominantly aren't for women. But, like, they're
1: comfortable.
0: So leave me alone, okay?
1: Yeah, mine is a steel toe uh, combat boots. Yeah. I, I have always worn them since I was, like, 14. I was in the construction industry. I was in the warehousing industry. Like, I find them comfortable. And I literally, if I put on, like, tennies, It's like I can't feel my feet because they're so light, which sounds really weird.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But that's one of the reasons, too, that I hate shoe shopping is because inevitably I will get the one chauvinist salesperson who, when I, like, show them the shoes that I want, goes, oh, well, those are men's shoes and they're really heavy.
0: Yes, I'm aware.
1: Yeah, to which my response is always, the better to kick you in the head with for being a
0: jerk. (laughs) Or you could always be like, yeah, why do you think my calves look so great? Right? I do with some pretty nice calves. They never see the line of day, but happens. And, and then, you know, there's me and I just don't like shoes at all. So. True. Sure. I just walk around barefoot all day long. <laughs> That'd be great. Home Depot will let me. Really? <laughs> I always wear socks because like sawdust and stuff, but yes. They'll that- let
1: seems like so counterintuitive because like they've got saws and stuff there
0: (laughs) but you know they they recognize that i'm adult i'm an adult i guess and i can make my own decisions and lose my own toes on my own
1: i mean it would be really really great if more companies would put the accountability back on the person right but that that's also a whole nother conversation (laughs) so on
0: point we should jump into the actual part so one of the things that you said was um it irritates you when people are like well instead of getting an abortion put things up for or put the babies up for adoptions put things yes
1: put things I mean that is how I would phrase it so yeah
0: um and and so I actually pulled the cost of everything and it so there's things that you can do so technically pregnancy costs can be between five and eleven thousand delivery can be between five and fourteen and a half thousand. Holy cow. Insurance can offer a lot. Um, on the flip side of that, an abortion can cost zero to fifteen hundred. Again, we went over that where if Medicaid is provided in your state that will cover that, it can be at zero cost. Um but the thing the other thing that you can do with adoption is if you find a family when you're pregnant that wants to adopt, there is a form of adoption where they help pay for your pregnancy costs and your delivery costs.
1: I've heard of that, but it's, I feel like it's not the norm. Like it's more an outlier.
0: It's not because you have to have somebody early on that's willing to take your baby when, when you deliver. And the thing with that is the mom that's delivering at any point could change their mind. And the family that's adopting is out of that money and of a child. And then they're looking again. So it's not normal because there are a lot of risks that.
1: I knew there was the risk of her changing her mind. I didn't realize they don't get their money back.
0: I'm sure that they could like take them to court and figure it out, but it is, it's in the contract. There's stuff that they can do. It's all. Again, this is why lawyers are involved in adoptions. (laughs) Yeah. Get an attorney and file the paperwork because a lot of people just, from what I could see online, there's a lot of people that don't get their money back because either the paperwork was drafted that way and mother's rights come into play a lot. So it's... But then on the flip side, there's also some cases where the mother that's delivering decides they want to keep the baby, but the the contract's so ironclad that they can't. And so, like like I said, there's risks on both sides of that. It's not not normal because there is no guarantee in it.
1: Yeah. And then you have the same mental health um, problems that you would have if she had gone through with an abortion in the first place, because now she's got a child that she knows she's not going to see. And a lot of times my understanding is the adopted parents really don't want the biological parent involved at all. Right. So, you know, even if you wanted to stay in the kid's life, you likely couldn't. And then you're going to have that fear all the time of like them finding you or trying to find you or whatever. And then having to face the past.
0: There's a lot of mom guilt with the, with adoption where it's like, well, they're going to think that I hate. them. Yeah this world thinking that they were hated from the beginning
1: ncis um did a really good episode on that when they brought jack in
0: mm-hmm.
1: um where yeah her her daughter finds her or she finds her daughter i can't remember which way it worked out um and there's like a season-long uh story with it and you know they finally come to terms with it and the, the daughter finally accepts that you know what putting her her putting her up for adoption was really the best thing she could have done but it was a it was a real like almost tearjerker
0: yeah they did it with abby and her brother too when she found out that she had a brother Mm. and she went through the well why was i adopted i love my family don't get me wrong but why was i the one that was sent for adoption and they did it really well with that one too
1: yeah, and that's that's one of the major barriers with adopting too that um, I know friends of mine that are adopted faced is like, you know, they wanted to adopt the one child and the, they were like, I'm not leaving my siblings. And if you have a family that wants to adopt you that is financially able to support more than one and then adopts the siblings, that's great. But a lot of times the siblings don't have any kind of choice and do get split up. Right. I know
0: that most states try to keep them together, but it's not always it's not always feasible yeah so it's i ultimately it needs to be what's what's beneficial to the kid but if all three siblings are not getting adopted together or they're not getting adopted by families that will keep them in communication for their entire lives i don't see how that's beneficial
1: yeah, and then you've got not only the trauma on the parents that had to put their children up for adoption, but now you also have additional trauma on the children.
0: Right, which a lot of the times when we're getting into that, the the kids that are multiple kids in the foster system, it wasn't the parents' choice to put them up. It was the state's choice. Yeah. So when we get into that one, it's more of they were already been neglected. They've already been abused. Um, and now... They're in a system that is supposed to be geared towards their best interest, but they could get separated. And then now they've got multiple family members that they're no longer going to be able to see. And and it's just not, it's not
1: good. Yeah. And the foster care system itself has been abused because, you know, if you're fostering a kid, obviously you're getting money from the state to foster. And unfortunately there are neglectful and abusive foster parents out there. That don't care about the kid; they just want the money.
0: There are, and the statistics on that are all over the place. Um, There's one study that was done by a law a law firm that was like, "Well, only 1.34 percent of foster families are, or kids in the foster system experience abuse of any kind." But then you look into that, and that's not the only 1.34% have experienced it. It's just that only 1.34% of it have gone and put an injury. They've gone to an injury lawyer and brought it up only or have actually reported it to the point of suing the parents.
1: Yeah. And again, we live in a society where there's a lot of victim blaming for any, anything, excuse me. And you know, no one wants to, no one wants to feel well, I'm not going to say no one, because there are people that enjoy being the victim. Um, But I think most people don't want to be considered a victim, and they don't want that kind of stigma on them. Like I was sexually abused as a child, and it took me years to come to terms with, one, that's what was going on, because I was so young when it happened. And two, being able to talk about it and not feel like I was responsible. Right. Shame is ridiculous. Like, it's just...
0: And speaking of the shame that goes with it and having to come so many years just to get over that, like, I'm glad you did it. There's still people that haven't.
1: Yeah. There's people that never will. Yeah. To fully come to terms with it, it took me, so I was abused from the time I was five, to the time I was seven. I was not fully healed from it. I I mean, I'm still probably not fully healed from it. Let's be honest. Um but I was not fully to terms with it, where I could talk about it and be okay with it, until I was twenty three. Yeah, and that was after like I'd gone through about eight counselors as a child for other things, um, and I finally like it was a lot of self reflection and figuring it out on my own that finally got me there.
0: Yeah, there is a lot of personal work that that needs to go into healing from any trauma. Like some there's, you can hear all day long that it's not your fault, but you have to put the work in to actually be like, oh crap, it really isn't my fault. Let me let this go. Yeah. Like not, not the situation, just the shame. Let me let the shame go. Yeah. So um, when it said that only 1.34% reported, I felt like that was a believable number, but at the same time, it also seems pretty high. So maybe they're getting some sort of support. Um, letting them know like it's okay to do this and and again, they're also not one hundred percent attached to these guys, so it's it's probably easier to report, you know,
1: yeah, well, and you also get the flip side too of when it's the foster kid who is causing the abuse, right Because um, I had a friend when I was growing up, um and she and I kind of like formed a bond because of this. She was abused by her foster brothers, yeah. And, you know, I, I, parents always put the blame on themselves for not realizing what was going on, but it, it's really, it, that's not it. Like, my mother had a lot of guilt for a long time that I, I, I think I finally helped her overcome, but, you know, it, it's not as easy as, oh, well, the parents weren't paying attention. Like, no, these, these are true narcissists who are very good at shifting blame or making you question your sanity and... You They're know, good. there's always the, well, if you report me, like, I'm going to report you back to the foster system or something like that.
0: They're really good at manipulating the system. Yeah. So, and then I know there's been a couple cases where like the foster kids are the ones that are doing the abuse and they'll tell the sibling, well, uh, if you report me, then I'm going to be placed somewhere else. And your parents are going to hate that because they love me. Like they put yeah. a lot of their kid as well. Yeah. But again, those are usually trauma responses from having gone through it themselves, and they're just not getting adequate mental health care.
1: Yeah, yeah, my abuser actually, um, he ended up going through like three other foster families, I think, and, you know, they they were convinced that he was the victim in all this, and, and this was before, like, everything that he had done to me came out, but you know they were convinced that he was the victim and that he just wasn't being loved and they spoiled him rotten and he stole from all of them yeah and the last family actually like finally had to put a restraining order on him because he did a bunch of illegal stuff and eventually ended up going to back to uh, going to jail right but you know they were they were convinced that you know he was the angel in the story and and he wasn't right So you get it on both sides. And so there's another risk with that as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And once you as a foster parent have like had that kind of mental strain where you brought someone into your house because you wanted to care for them and love them and give them a family and then they turned around and abused you or your children or something, you are going to be less likely to want to do it again. Well, yeah.
0: And depending on how severe it is, sometimes you no longer qualify to do it again. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the, one of the requirements for fostering is that everybody, it's a healthy home life and that everybody is, is mentally okay to take this on. And if you have a child that's gone through traumatic incidents, depending on how traumatic it was, if that child cannot take on another kid, they won't approve the foster. Yeah. So, which is good. It is. Um, but- at the same time, like not all fosters are, are, are like that. And I come from a standpoint where like, if I'm traumatized by something, then I need to go and I need to prove to myself that that situation is actually an outlier situation. So for me, if I was abused by a foster kid that my parents adopted, I would think getting another foster kid and seeing the positive side of that would help in
1: my healing.
0: But I And I know.
1: agree with that viewpoint, um, but I'm going to go kind of on a limb here and say that that's probably a very rare viewpoint.
0: No, it definitely is, because people don't heal the same way. Yeah. They just, they, they don't. Yeah. Uh, and thinking that people do, like, that's the same with learning styles. People don't learn the same way. They don't heal the same way. They're not reactive to the same things. Um, they're not traumatized the same way. Yeah. So one traumatic incident for one person, another person could be really not that big of a deal.
1: Yeah, depending on how your brain is processing it. Right.
0: Exactly. Um. So outside of that, one point three percent that has been reported, there's a couple different studies I saw. There was somebody who, who did, who put one together, but he seemed a little irritated. Um, because his colleague said that it was a really low percent and so he was upset. So I don't know if these are exaggerated numbers but I wouldn't doubt it. Um, He was saying that surveys show over the last couple decades that 25 to 40 percent of kids in the foster system experience neglect or abuse of some kind. Oh Um, wow. His incidence showed 34 percent. So I went on to an adoption website to kind of figure, figure out what's going on from a non-media opinionated article written thing yeah and so they had 9.4 percent of the kids that are in foster experience physical neglect and physical abuse with 5.6 of that 9.4 percent being physical abuse only and then four percent of kids experience sexual abuse or malnutrients and 37 of that 4% is sexual abuse only. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's a total of 13.4% that go through some kind of, of harm.
1: Which that's is a lot. Crazy. It really is. It's ridiculous. So those are actually a little bit lower than the numbers that I had found. Um, Let's see, the one that I found was done in 2012 on 686,000 children who reported as victims of child abuse. Over 80% of the cases, the children's parents were perpetrators. Um, Among the victims, 18% were physically abused, 9% were sexually abused, and 8.5% were psychologically maltreated. The majority, which was 78.3% of the victims, suffered neglect of some kind without physical, sexual, or psychological abuse. Right.
0: And see, that's what I mean by, like, it's all over. My numbers are all from 2019, but that doesn't... Like, the numbers are all over the place. Yeah. So, And
1: that was one of the interesting things I found when I was looking into the adoption portion of it as well, is um, there is a lot of anti-adoption bias in pregnancy counseling. (laughs) So um, 40% of individuals... who identify identify themselves as pregnancy counselors don't even raise the issue of adoption with clients. Right. An additional 40% provide inaccurate or incomplete information to clients. Right. A lot of them will use fear tactics. Yeah.
0: Your kid can be put up for adoption. However, your kid's going to be neglected and abused and they're going to experience this and then they're going to grow up and end up in jail. Yeah. They use fear tactics.
1: Which is incredibly unprofessional right and has to violate some kind of your training right well and human rights it's our right to make our own
0: decision based on our opinion that's been formed by our research or the knowledge given to us not our opinion forced on us by your opinion
1: yeah it, it, and uh, and on that note the uh the systemic racism that is involved in an adoption is rampant as well and i know no one likes to talk about systemic racism but i'm sorry it's real it happens and there's two main forms of uh, racial discrimination that take place and that's discrimination against parents as well as against children so potential black parents can actually lose the chance to give their love to black children, Mm -hmm. which then means black children can be deprived of new parents and a good foundation in life because rather than being adopted by a well-to-do, you know, able to care for them, wanting to care for them, black family, they're placed in a white home and, you know, those white parents could just be playing the system. Like they don't actually want to care. Now I'm not saying that always happens. There are a lot of, uh, you know, adopted mothers out there that have black children that absolutely love them and, you know, aren't just going to abuse them, but there, there are, and this is, this is only dealing with um, black children and black parents. This doesn't even touch on indigenous or Asian or um, Hispanic. Like this is, only looking at black children. But it's safe to say the same stigmas, the same nonsense is happening to all non-white children, let's just put it that way, and parents.
0: So, um, the, the indigenous actually have a welfare act put in place to help support the, the kids that are put in. So it's, it's it's in place so that they can preserve and strengthen the families and the culture. Which but is good. It, it, this act, reading what all it entails, is amazing. So the placement court cases, they are supposed to be held in tribal courts. And if a tribal court isn't available, then somebody... From the tribe is supposed to be involved at the state court and then they're to be involved in everything that goes to state court good for the the kid to be removed from their house it can only be recommended through a testimony from somebody who's familiar with the culture and i think they use the word familiar because you can be an quote-unquote expert but not actually know how it works. I think that they use familiar because it has to be somebody who has lived and grown up and seen the culture and knows firsthand.
1: Yeah. There's definitely a vast difference of, you know, having studied and maybe understood a right. different cultures, religious um, history or religious practices compared to actually living those practices. Right. And I said, so that's, that's actually really good.
0: I think that's why they use that word. I like that. That and makes me. The law also requires that those kids are placed with extended family members. And if that's not available, then other members within their tribe. And then if that's not available, then other Native American families before anybody else. Good. Um, so that Welfare Act, I think, is, is fantastic.
1: When was that passed?
0: Um, you know what? I will pull it up on Google while I do that because I didn't get when it was passed. But It's called the Indian Child Wear- Welfare Act. And I was reading that and it just, it was amazing. Especially with everything that we have done. Um, so it looks like it was passed in 1978. Oh, wow. The 95th United States Congress. And then I saw something about 2021, but it wasn't, I wonder if they made an amendment to it this year.
1: That, that's actually really eye-opening and really, really like, like you said, really good because up until 2018, I mean, there were doctors that were still sterilizing indigenous women right after they gave birth. And, you know, the excuses are anything from, well, oh, the state said that we need to because you keep having kids that you can't support to, oh, well, we thought your health would be in danger or like, you know, BS excuses to basically try to control indigenous population, which is just terrible. It is. Yeah. And this is why when people are like, oh, well, you know, everyone just needs to get over this whole systemic racism thing. Like, no, this isn't stuff that happened hundreds of years ago. This is stuff that happened within the last 50 years. In this case, within the last four years,
0: it is. And we've had the discussion before where, um, like, I don't necessarily think it's systemic, but I do think it's governmental. And I think it's because we've had that discussion where I, I think that it's the people in place that are putting, that are supposed to be um, not controlling, but like they're in, they're the ones that are supposed to be like monitoring and regulation, regulating the system. It's the people that are
1: high up that are putting it in place. And I think that's why it's called systemic is because the government is supposedly in control of the systems that we should be working. You know, Colorado recently um, removed a law on their books that I can't remember what it was that it was a law that hasn't been enforced, but it was still geared toward harming indigenous. And so you know, the argument could be made that, like, oh, well, it's just a, a show of good faith. It's not actually going to do anything. But the tribes that are there were extremely happy that the law was finally removed. Right. It's because respect. it's a step in the right direction.
0: Right. It's a respecting. It's it's acknowledging that they're a person. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. I think that that's why they put that word. But, you know, like we discussed last week, words do matter. Oh, yeah. And you put for some people, you put systemic in front of it and they're like, okay, well then this small business downtown, that's not that's not what the yeah, you' up are the ones that are making it ridiculously impossible. And incentivizing the welfare, um, multiple kids, multiple dads, across the board. Yeah, incentivizing it. So. I did pull up national averages though and there, it showed that a third of the kids in the foster system are quote people of color but they didn't say if that that people of color quote was black kids only if it was all BIPOC it, it didn't say at all yeah. people of color and when you read people of color it's saying one third is black in my eyes and then the other two-thirds is white hispanic asian native american like that that creates the other two-thirds so the majority of foster kids if i look at that stat it says that they're predominantly black kids gotcha but we have no idea because it just says people of color yeah okay well
1: like what does that mean like, and what always gets me is like, why does it matter? Right, but you know, and like, it, it bothers me so much. Like, because like about ten years ago, well, about eight years ago, when when um, Trump and Hillary were running, and there was a lot of talk of like the Confederate flag and all that, I had made the statement that I think the media makes this country out to be more racist than it is. Right. Um, but since then, I've been following a lot more, um, BIPOC creators and indigenous creators because of, you know, a broader network of social media. And there's a lot of like little themes that I didn't even think of that really does kind of lean into the fact that this country is still really problematic when it comes to judging people based on the color of their skin.
0: It is. And, and, we've also gone into conversations with that because it's not just color of skin. It's also class. Mm-hmm. It's anybody in the lower class.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing. That's, that's the demographic that a lot of these laws and stuff really hurt. Right. You know, to the point where like, there's an argument to be made that like America hates the poor. Right. Well, they, they absolutely do, but they yeah. incentivize the poor. Yeah. No, you brought up that the adoption process here in the States was so crazy that a lot of people are actually adopting outside of the U S
0: they are. And I pulled those numbers as well. (laughs) So the average cost of adopting either, um, private or domestic is between 60,000 and $70,000. Versus internationally, I only pulled up three countries, um, for their international adoption rates, but their rates are 30,000 to 50,000. So still a lot, but still a lot. But that's the cost of the bottom of private or, yeah, of private and domestic in state. That's half
1: the cost. Yeah. And wow. 30 is a lot easier to get than 60. And yeah. There- I, I obviously have never tried to adopt a child. um I have looked into pet adoption yeah, cut it off. You know, while that's not, I mean, it's, it's fairly cheap, especially in regards to those numbers, but it's still like, and I understand why they do it, but you know, I value my privacy and the fact that they do like the home visits and stuff. Like I understand they don't want to, you know, give uh, dogs out to people who are going to like fight them or, you know, put them in, in horrible dog fights or anything like that. But at the same time, like, I don't need some person I don't know coming to my house to decide whether or not I can take care of a dog. (laughs) Right. And unfortunately, that's in place because of those people that take the dogs
0: and abuse them or neglect them or put them in dog fights. And and the fact that it does happen often.
1: Yeah. So I get it. But it still feels like a massive violation of privacy. And, you know, if I'm feeling like that for adopting a dog, like it's got to be 10 times more intrusive for adopting a human. It is. There's a lot that goes into it.
0: Um, home studies, you have to fill out an application and put a description of your family. You have to get references from people that you know. They run a, a CANS report, which goes over your criminal history and any child abuse or neglect cases. And then they also do a fingerprint background. And then a social worker has to do interviews and home visits. And they're like, it's not just one, it's multiple over the span, um, as well as a physical exam for everybody in the household what? Extremely invasive. However, on the flip side of that, we're talking about real live human kids that are getting abused often. So you look at that home study and everything that goes into it. And then they also have to be like of good character. So outside of the cans and fingerprint, you know, there can't be any um, severe cases where they've gone to court for like, uh, domestic violence or anything like that. Um, they also have to do a 30 hour training class. They have to be older than 21. Um, and then if they're going to adopt a kid, they have to be at least 10 years older than that kid. The home environment has to be good and they have to be what I call income independent. They can't be dependent on, on the system. Um, so there's all these things that go in and it's, it's quite invasive and for adopting a kid, I think that it's good, but you hear all these requirements and then you're just like, how is this abuse happening on such a wide scale when there's such, there's so many requirements they have to meet? Yeah. So it's, it's weird. And I don't know how they do the cans or the fingerprint and how they mentally figure out that a parent's going to be good, but obviously somewhere in this, in the home studies and everything, we're failing these kids half of the time at least
1: well and I think a large portion of that too is you have to look at the professionals that are doing these you know these home visits and these counseling sessions and whatnot because there's a lot of counselors out there that really shouldn't be counselors right and you know if you get the one who like doesn't care anymore they're gonna you know overlook a lot of themes because right. they don't want to be there exactly and so you know it it's such a multi-level of subjective thoughts and like if you say you know it it be it could be as easy as saying like we've talked about before like if you say you voted for trump and the home visit person is a staunch democrat like they're probably gonna deny you just based on that right and that's not okay
0: pull up and be like well you're a racist and a child abuser and all this other thing so you can't have them yeah and then on the flip side, if you voted for Biden and somebody's an a ultra conservative, they're going to be like, well, you're dependent on the welfare system and social programs, so you can't have them because you can't provide. Yeah. And it's not true in either case. I mean, sometimes it could be, but it is a, an assumption that's based on media driven opinions. Yeah. So it's, I don't know, it's all weird. The social worker, the fact that they have to go in and do this, they also need to take into account that people save face a lot, especially when they know services like that are temporary or if they only happen like once every month. It's easy to pretend that you're a good person once a month than it is to be a good person all 30 to 31 days. Mm hmm. And, so, and it looks like
1: that too, is you could have one bad day where you're stressed out and you accidentally snap at the social worker and then all of a sudden you're crazy, especially if you're female, right? You're reactive and it's just not a, an environment that's conducive to, yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a lot and there's even more for special need kids. Um, you know, they have on top of the 30 hours, they have a, an orientation prep class that they have to take. Um, they have to start with visitations before the placement can happen. And then there's six months of um, post-placement supervision and support.
1: Which is good because there's definitely a lack of empathy in humans, I believe. And I think a lot of times people think that they can deal with something or think they know how to deal with something when they really don't. And there's a lot that goes into that. I used to
0: work for a company that supplied um helpers to families recently fostered kids mm-hmm. and so the parents have to get certified to be um so it's not just first aid but it's also how to handle and how to how to contain kids that are going through situations that can be harmful to themselves or others mm-hmm. you have to learn the proper ways of handling those situations um and restraining kids that are violent and reactive as well you have to learn all of those. And the family that I worked with, they got a, a kid that was same age as me. So we're in our twenties, but she was autistic to the point that she had the mental capacity of a four year old. One of the stipulations they had was that this child cannot be put in timeout at all, no matter what, they just cannot be put in timeout. And there was one night where, She like had an accident or something happened and she had to be restrained for a little bit. And then she was asked to sit in a chair at the table so that they could clean up, get rid of everything, make sure that it was a safe and a safe room for her to go back into. But because she was asked to sit in the chair at the kitchen table, they took her out of that home and would not give them another foster kid. Jeez. That kid was she was so amazing. I loved her. The family loved her. And just one small choice, sit in this chair so that I can go clean this up. They no longer got to, to foster her or anybody else. And this kid, the house that she was previously in, they had cigarettes and they would put them out in her arms. Oh my God. And they had her for probably eight months. It took them six months to get her out of that home. It took them less than six days to get them out of my friend's home for sitting her in a chair. That is... Wow. Right. And then they were denied anything else. They were denied ever again.
1: And then you also have to look at the flip side of that, too, where I've seen... um... I follow a creator who his sister is I don't think it's autistic, but I don't remember what it is. Um, but she started having an episode in a store mm-hmm. and the family restrained her in the ways that they had been trained by medical professionals and mental health professionals to restrain her, to remove her from the store. And um, some stand, you know, person that was just there Called the cops, right? And so then they had to explain to the cop, like, no, my, you know, my sister has this mental health disorder. Like, we've been trained. Here's our her certification and all this other stuff. And so if you know if it's your blood relative, like, obviously that's easier to explain. But it seems like if if I was fostering someone like that and then I had to restrain them and someone called the cops, that's a black mark on me for doing the right thing, right? Yeah. And so again, it's so subjective.
0: Well, and what we, what we picture as being abusive and what actually is abusive, they look very similar. You know, you're told that if somebody's going to come up to you on the street and take you, they're going to grab you from behind and make sure that you can't use your arms or anything to kick and get away. Well, these parents that have to restrain these kids, some of them have to go behind and give them a bear hug and get their hands in order and then sometimes you have to sit down and make sure that they can't kick and scream and that they're just in the fetal position because that has been known to be comforting. Mm -hmm. But it does look very invasive. And even though I've been trained to do this, if I have to do it on somebody else's kid, it's still very uncomfortable for me. Um, I had to do it in gymnastics once. We were doing a, a nightly class, like a parent night out type thing. And there was one kid there that ended up getting really aggressive. And we had 19 other kids. I'm the only teacher that was certified in this. So I had to restrain him and immediately sent a text to the mom. and was like, I'm so sorry. This is what happened. I swear I wasn't squeezing. I wasn't being mean. I was just trying to get him to calm down. He did calm down. Everything's okay now. But like this kid's taller than I was. Yeah. If he wanted to not only could he hurt the other 19 kids, but he could have hurt me and the other teachers as well. But it's still because of the, what the stipulations that people put on what they perceive as abuse. I was still very uncomfortable with it.
1: Yeah. So it's just that kind of leads into another conversation that you and I had previously of, you know, the stigma and the lack of understanding of what mental health really looks like. Right right
0: and mental health with females as well since we're talking oh god yeah we are perceived as weak for going like every yeah is mental health awareness and crying and all these things but even as a woman if somebody perceives you doing that you're still perceived as being weak or
1: Not even the being weak portion, but just like if you finally snap because you're tired of someone's abuse or someone's, you know, like the. Oh, are you still there?
0: Are we going through technical difficulties? (laughs) Sorry. Oh, there we go. Uh,
1: We're good, I think. Um, But yeah, you know, like I mean, women like we are silent on a lot of shit because we're taught at a young age to not make waves, which is just ridiculous. Um, and so, and you get it a lot of times too, with like women doing it to women where we use purposely like chauvinistic phraseology and terminology on each other. Right. You know, and I, I've, I've absolutely been guilty of that. Um and now that i recognize that i try to be better about it but again like you see a woman freaking out and you're just like oh she's crazy like um the the girl that just got killed gabby yeah you know her, that was the first thing her boyfriend said to the cops was like oh yeah she does this all the time she's crazy and right. like he said it like a joke but like people take it seriously yeah
0: women are labeled crazy all the time for any show of emotion that people are uncomfortable witnessing
1: yeah And then you look at, you know, like guys always complain about like women on their period being all kinds of crazy. Well, yeah, because they're also on hormonal birth control because you refuse to get your shit snipped and hormonal birth control really screws with us.
0: It does. Well, and then that also brings up the tying of the tubes, which is a reversible procedure and we can't get,
1: yeah, we can't get anyone to do it.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of different alternatives that just aren't an, aren't an option.
1: Yeah. So, and you know, like you get it too with, especially we're talking about adoption, things like that. You know, if um, a woman has multiple baby daddies, yeah, like, you know, she's seen as a slut, even if she's the one taking care of the kids, like no one brings up the dad or the multiple dads, you know, they're like, Oh, well she brought this on herself. No, not necessarily. Right. But she's at least stepped up to take care of the kids. Exactly. Well, and then with adoption
0: on the other side too, parents that give their child up for adoption, A lot of the times don't say anything because people look at them and like, oh, you're one of those parents and it shouldn't be a negative thing. Like I think giving your child up for adoption in cases where you can't, can't take care of them or don't think that you're a good fit or whatever. And you're putting the child's needs before yours is a very selfless thing and it's beautiful and it should be cherished, not shamed, Mm -hmm. but it is, it's shamed in today's society. Like, oh, you gave your kid up for adoption. I don't want to be friends with you.
1: Yeah, women are shamed for everything in this country. I mean, modesty culture basically teaches women that you know it's our responsibility to cover ourselves right. to keep men from having impure thoughts. And it's like, no, tre- teach men to view women as people, right? Not object. Isn't that bloody simple. Like my shoulders showing in class should have no like repercussions because it's distracting the boys. Teach right. the boys not to look.
0: But on the flip side of that, nowadays, people are also getting shamed for being modest because, well, then you're anti-feminist.
1: True. And I go really back and forth on this because I am one of those people that, like, I like to be covered. I like layers. So do I. Um, And so whenever I see a woman who dresses in a way that I necessarily wouldn't, my first reaction, my gut reaction is, ugh, girl, put some clothes on. Right, But my brain also flips it and goes, well, no, like you're shaming, like just be happy for her that she's comfortable in those clothes. Right. And so it's a constant like fight in my brain.
0: I do that often. And I have to like, when I, when I see things, I have to be like, okay, well, they're comfortable wearing it and that's all that matters. And even though I'm not comfortable dressing like that, my uncomfort does not dictate their comfort. Exactly. And so it is, it's something that we've been taught. We've been fed and we have to, we have to recognize that in ourselves. I do it a lot. I like loose fitting clothes. I don't like tight fitting clothes. I never have. Same. Like whether I'm 120 pounds or 220 pounds, I've always been in tight fitting clothes and looked at myself and been like, this just isn't right. Yeah. But you give me a pair of shorts and a sweatshirt and I'm perfectly content. Like, here we are. This is golden.
1: (laughs) see and I even have an issue with shorts because like you know I grew up in the country I grew up riding horses and hauling hay like shorts just weren't a part of my normal day Mm -hmm. and anytime that I like would want to buy shorts to me they were too short right and so um 511 actually makes a decent pair of shorts that go down to what I feel is a comfortable length for me that I can actually wear but I still feel really uncomfortable wearing them out in public
0: Seven does too. They make really cute Bermuda shorts that go, um, mid thigh and they're, they're secure. They don't like ride up.
1: Yeah. But that was one of the fights that I remember, um, the girls in my high school having to go through was proving to the school board that their, um, rules on what was acceptable for shorts were impossible to buy as a female.
0: Right. Well, and on that, so in high school, I had a, sh- a skirt that was the appropriate length. It went right below my fingertips like it was supposed to. But girls with different size legs were also, again, discriminated against. So because my skirt was perceived as shorter than the standard, I couldn't wear it even though it was within dress code. Yeah. But then they also did it where the cheerleaders or the dancers got away with a lot shorter Because their cheerleading skirts were also short, too. So they got away with a lot more uh, violations of the dress code than normal kids did. Mm -hmm. They're already so used to seeing so much of their legs on display that it just wasn't as, as in their face when they put shorts on. Yes. So, and I have short, stubby legs. And it just, it is what it is. So, yeah. It just is.
1: Um. Well, like I would wear skirts in school, but like I also, you know, I I have a very gothic aesthetic. And so um, whenever like my jeans would wear out, I would cut them off like mid thigh and then I would um, use shoelaces to like tie them to my legs. So it still looked like I was wearing pants under my skirt, even though I wasn't. Right. Um, and I would still have shorts of some kind under my skirt because I was always paranoid of like falling over or, you know, something like that. And to this day, like, you know, I so when I was in like second grade, I had like bent over a water fountain to get a drink of water. And one of the boys came up behind me and like started dry humping me. Mm hmm. And I was like, what the hell? And so to this day, like if I bend over, like I don't bend over, I squat down. Or if I do have to like bend over, my foot instinctively goes up. So that if anybody comes up behind me, I can feel them. Right. And I squat down too. Um, I mean, in front of my husband, but otherwise I squat down too for the same reason. Oh, I even do it in front of my significant other. And it drives him insane. Yeah.
0: But like, even then, like you're saying you were in a skirt, but it doesn't matter if you're in baggy jeans
1: or not. Oh, no, I was not in a skirt that day. I was in pants.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. You bend over yeah. and hormones are, are nasty. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and, and that's why the argument whenever a girl gets raped and someone's like, oh, well, look at what she was wearing. Statistically, women that are leaving the gym in baggy clothes get raped more often because it's more easily accessible. And so the whole argument of, well, she was wearing that. She was asking for it. Cool. I'm going to start wearing fancy dresses because I'm asking for a million dollars. Seriously. You um, know, like that whole, that is where society really needs to change. They do. Because a woman is never asking to get raped. And, you know, there, I've heard the argument so many times, and I've actually really gone back and forth my significant other on this one um, because his viewpoint on it just stunned me. Where he was like, well, you know, she didn't need to get pissed off and like leave her friends. And I'm like, no, that, that doesn't make it okay. Right. If you're drunk and you get mad and you leave because your friends are being dicks and you want to go home, that does not open the door to be assaulted.
0: No, you should be able to know that you can go home without any problems.
1: Yeah. Because if a dude gets drunk and pissed off and walks off, nothing happens to him. Because women don't have the power trip necessity that men do. Right. But on the flip side of that, like, it does happen
0: to men and we don't, we need as a society to stop shaming men for that. But any emotion with men needs to just stop being shamed. Yeah. Like, we understand you're human and things happen and, and, you know, get it out, heal from it. Don't just hold on to it.
1: Yeah. And especially with mental health, there's a there's a much again, going back into like systemic racism and whatnot. um, Black, especially mental health is really mishandled Mm -hmm. because a lot of times when they're going to counselors and obviously this is not, this is a generalized statement. This isn't necessarily, you know, a fact or anything like that. But a lot of times through studies, when they're going to counselors, they're going to white counselors. Right. And, you know, again culturally we are different
0: right. and
1: so if you get a racist counselor they're going to discredit everything you're saying right and this is why there's not enough focus on bipoc mental health because there's there's no acceptable form of helping them because you know unless you've put in the work as a white person to understand what they go through and the barriers they're actually facing and how it affects their mental health. You're going to discount it just as much as doctors discount women. Right. And, and, you know, pulling the fostering back into that,
0: that happens a lot because a lot of those kids are traumatized and they're just not getting the help that they need. Mm-hmm. And they're told like, Oh, well, it's just your demographic or it's the drug use or whatever. And, and so get over it. Yeah. Well, no, it's not. And it doesn't, doesn't need to be that way it needs to be better these kids need to be taken care of better Mm -hmm. so it we're doing a big disservice to adults and kids and especially when you consider of the kids that are in foster and adopting 10 percent of them age out of the system without families Mm -hmm. so they age out without families they don't have a good support system they don't know what mental health looks like or needs to be and they're left to their own devices in a world that doesn't have mental health that's good for anybody but especially the black culture and community and so they're they're the ones that end up being homeless or unemployed or they go to jail and you know they say three percent of the ten percent that age out go to jail and that's a huge percentage yeah So it's just, we do our, uh, our mental health care system is nowhere close to the mental health care system of of Europe and is that the European countries have, we don't recognize for like a decade later, like my daughter has one. Um, She's got oppositional defiance, which is a European diagnosis that not every doctor in the United States even recognizes as a true diagnosis. Only
1: 30 doctors here do or 30% of doctors here do. And that kind of touches on a different um, issue that you and I had talked about where there's, there, there has been a shift recently in mental health awareness, which is great. But now you also have the extremists on the other side who are saying, well, I have this mental health disorder and I'm not going to get medicated because I don't trust the medical system, which I am 100% on board with. But also, like, you just need to accept that this is how I am. Right. And, it's, and, and that's where the divide comes in. Like, no, knowing that you have a mental health disorder is the first step. Right. You still
0: have to be accountable for your actions and your treatment, no matter yeah. what you choose to take.
1: And I think that one hits home for me a lot because I, I, I love my significant other. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, he, he will throw ADHD out there like, daily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a long time, like I was just like, you don't have ADHD, because I feel like it's severely overdiagnosed in the medical industry for children. In the adult industry, I feel like it's overdiagnosed, like self-diagnosed. Yes. So I've been trying to learn more about it. And there are many things about ADHD that I'm like, Oh, no, okay, that does fit. But at the same time, like if you are using that as your excuse, when I know you're not doing anything to change it or to learn new behaviors, that's no longer an excuse. It's a crutch. And I do not accept that. Right. There are coping
0: techniques and methods that you can learn and use and and you can change your diet and you can work out more and you can find an outlet. There's things that you can do and put in place.
1: Yeah. I saw a really interesting one, um, not too long ago. That was, um, they called it the ADHD tax, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but it was basically this guy saying like, look, I have ADHD too. And so I will spend more on my groceries for pre-prepped food because I know I'm going to eat it. Right. Whereas if I, if I buy a $2 and 50 cent pack of pre-cut and washed broccoli, I'm more likely to use it. If I buy a head of broccoli because it's cheaper, I'm going to throw it away because I'm not going to take the time to rinse it and cut it and then eat it. Right. And I found it fascinating because that's not something that you think pre-prepped food, you're always thinking like, Oh, like people just want the easy way out. Like you don't think about the mental health reasons for pre-prepped food. Right. And so it was very eye opening. Um, but at the same time, I respected him for saying like, yeah, this is how my brain works. And if I spend the extra money on the groceries, I now also have 20 more minutes of I might actually get the dishes done or I might actually pick up my room or, you know, anything else. Well, and speaking of
0: dishes, I have um, anxiety and PTSD and and a lot of the times that just makes me to where I don't want to move. so. I have paper plates and I know a couple of my friends that have ADHD that do the same Um, to eliminate dirty dishes and having to do them all the time, you use plastic dishware so you can just throw it away. And then that does give me time to do laundry or, you know, something that I don't want to do. Yeah. (laughs) Clean the bathroom, wash the walls, something. Um, So there's that flip side of it too. paper plates.
1: Yeah. And I do understand like the difficulty that he has living with me because like, I am a clean freak. I don't like messes. I don't like clutter. And for me, when it comes to cleaning, like it's easier to dust a clean table than it is to pick up a bunch of random stuff that doesn't belong there and clean underneath it. Right. And so, you know, like he gets frustrated with me because I'm frustrated with him because stuff's not clean. But then I'm not cleaning the things that are important to him, but I'm not cleaning those things because they're covered in his stuff. (laughs) Right. So I'm not saying I I get that it's frustrating for both of us. I'm not at all trying to say that this is all on him. Right. Um, But again, this is where it goes back to what we've always talked about is communication, like sitting down and figuring out how two different people with these kind of things can actually cohabitate in a way that's good for both of them. Right. And it's, it's not a comfortable conversation. It's not. Right. But, but it's a necessary one. Yeah. That was loud.
0: It, and it always is. And that's why that's, you know, again, why we started the podcast. Just have a freaking conversation. Yes. We social media has made it so easy to not ever talk to anybody. Yeah. And because of that, as a society, we are divided we're divided in every aspect not just politically it's, no, it's just, everything it doesn't matter what it is like going back to the shaming you're damned if you do and damned if you don't yeah and there is no in between
1: yeah and again like you know I I don't really fit like the normal perception of a female um I I am fairly unemotional I am you know, like, I don't cry. Like, if I feel like I'm going to cry, like, I just don't understand why, and, like, I compartmentalize, and I shut down, like, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, hang on. Okay. Are you still there? Yeah. Um, and so I have, on more than one occasion, used the phrase, bitches be crazy. Right. Because I admit that, like, I have things that I am, not normal about let's put it that way or the generalized perception of normal um i, I love the term normal is an illusion what's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly right um but you know i've used that as well but m- the way i always look at it too is we do have our little ticks and quirks that make us be perceived as crazy but you also can't the The argument of well, well it's hormones. Okay, cool. Be- having hormones does not give you an excuse to be a dick. No,
0: and it doesn't mean that you're crazy.
1: Again, a crazy is a mental illness. Yeah. And so, again, like I've tried to to stop saying that, but at the same time, like there there are many things, and this is why it's staunch feminists and I don't get along. There are many things where I'm like, you are blowing this out of proportion, and you refuse. I think this is a bigger problem. You refuse to acknowledge that you are reacting as well. Yeah. Um, But I think a lot of that refusal comes from men putting all of the blame on them, you know? Right. Because you hear men all the time like, oh yeah, I said this and then she took it the wrong way and she just went off the handle and it's like, okay, so you were literally putting all of the blame on the way that she perceived what you said rather than you taking a step back and maybe clarifying what you meant. Right.
0: But again, that also brings up a point in today's society where you could say the right thing in the right way and people are going to take offense to what they want to take offense to. True. But, you know, I'm growing up with a narcissistic mom, um, two of them. I'm very much the person who I don't ever want to come across as narcissistic, so I will take on more accountability for something that I say than most people do. Yeah, um, just so that I know for a fact I'm taking credit for what is my fault and what I say wrong. And a lot of times people are like, what are you even doing? It's like, that's my trauma reaction. My trauma reaction is, yeah, you know what? I did do this and this and this, and those were wrong. And I shouldn't have done that. And I should have handled it this way. And I should have done it this way. When in reality, it it probably isn't all mine, but I'm not going to place the whole blame on anybody Ever. Because to me, that's what happened my entire childhood. Yeah. But people don't do that. They, they don't. Like you said, they put the blame solely on the other party. It's like there's two parties to a conversation, at least. It's not mm-hmm. just. So, and that's like we were talking before, before we started this, there was another person of a different political party that as soon as you started talking, just shut you out completely yeah no responsibility taken it's all on you and like that's not fair (laughs) yes but I hate that phrase the that's not fair yes I know but in this case it really wasn't true you were treated extremely unfairly because your opinion didn't align with theirs And like our opinions align sometimes, but we have to have conversations about things that we don't agree on in order to find the opinions that do align.
1: Yeah, and even when you and I don't agree, like I still learn something from you. Same. Which to me is a more valuable thing. Well, it is. And
0: we've gained a friendship in you know, people that we wouldn't have met otherwise and probably wouldn't have had conversations with otherwise. Um, because, well, I'm an introverted extrovert, so without work, I wouldn't have gone up to anybody and talked to them, but, yeah, <laughs> but then we also wouldn't hang out in the same places. We wouldn't go to the, do the same things and, and politically, you know, we probably would be on different sides. So we'd automatically just be like, oh, well, they're probably a great person, but I don't want to talk to them. And then thanks yeah. to our job and us having to communicate and having to push past those boundaries and, and uncomfortableness is here we are. Yeah. Because again, just have a conversation, people. Jeez. <laughs> I feel like that should be our tagline. <laughs> that should be. Just freaking communicate already.
1: Go talk to your neighbor. Jeez. But again, like communication is kind of subjective because, like you were saying, like you can say something which to you sounds completely unbiased, which to somebody else, they're going to take the wrong way. Right. And I, you know, I do agree with the statement that, like, the way you took what I said is not my responsibility, but at the same time, it is your responsibility to say it in a way that, you know, couldn't, doesn't use terrible slang or doesn't use terrible labeling like we see in in social media and media in general.
0: Right. Or at the very least, make sure that they understand your intentions. Don't just assume that they know your intentions.
1: Yeah, especially if it's somebody you don't know, right? Right. Or through text message. Oh my God. Yeah. Someone needs to invent a font for like sarcasm or yes. <laughs> something like that because it just does not convey. And that's where a lot of fights and whatnot happen is just basic misunderstandings that get blown right. out of proportion. Do you know how easy? Like people always say, co-parenting is one of the hardest things to
0: do. But do you know how easy co-parenting would be if you just understood when the other person was legitimately asking you for something that you needed, and not insinuating that you don't provide enough. That's an interesting point. Yeah, communication would be a lot easier. I had to learn that with uh, my daughter's dad because you know, I'd be like, Hey, I don't have enough for a coat. She needs a coat. And then it would turn into this. I send you child support. That's not enough. What are you doing with the money? It's like, that's not at all what I'm trying to say. You know, the money goes to her daycare and her food and clothes, but the coat thing, she just grew out. This is something that I wasn't prepared for. I need a new coat. And I just don't happen to have the $15. And then, you know, instead of it coming across that way, it's, well, you only ever want to talk to me for money. That's not my intention. Like which we have a great co-parenting relationship now, but it was not easy because texting again is taken the wrong way.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm kind of in a different boat on that where, you know, again, I don't have a child, um, but my significant other does. And so for all intents and purposes, like he is my stepson. I've been with his dad for a very long time. Um, but he is not being raised in the way that like in my brain he should be. Mm-hmm. but because I am not actually his parent, like I really struggle with like, what can I say? What can't I say? And like, am I part of this or not? And so oftentimes when he does things that frustrate me, like I just kind of ignore it. Um, and my significant other has been very good lately after we've, we've had a few conversations about this of like kind of recognizing that and being like, what, what is it? Just say it. It's fine. Right. Um, but I struggled for, a year and a half of like just shutting myself in my room when the kid was around, because I didn't, I was frustrated with, you know, what was going on, but I didn't feel like it was my place to say anything. Right. Yeah. That's gotta be extremely difficult. It's a very strange dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, for a while, I thought it was going to be what ended our relationship, honestly.
0: Right. Right. But working through it, like putting effort in. Yeah. is all the the communication.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Because I finally had to sit him down and I was like, look, am I part of this parenting dynamic or am I not? Right. Because I don't don't like what's going on, but you're not listening to my perception of it because you feel like I'm attacking you as a father, which is not what I am doing. Right. But... These are things that I am seeing that like he needs to grow up to be, you know, a viable adult and know how to deal with things. And it doesn't seem like he's being taught that. Is that like it it was it was rough. It's still rough. Like I still, you know, again, like I don't have a maternal bone in my body. So right. But I also don't want to sound like, you know. The evil stepmom. Right. But I'll back you up on that, because I
0: was given so much crap by her other side of the family when I started teaching her how to cook on her own. Um, because well she's too young and she doesn't need to get, learn that yet and and you're just not you're trying to put off your responsibilities and it's like no my responsible my responsibility as an adult is to make sure that my daughter goes out into this world as a functioning adult who can take care of herself and I can't do that if I don't teach her life skills yeah like so what my five-year-old knows how to use a microwave to make mac and cheese good like yeah as a single parent, if as a single parent with fibromyalgia, if I have a migraine that is literally leaving me incapacitated, or if I'm sick one day and just can't get out of bed, who else is going to microwave that mac and cheese for her?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not like I'm telling her to use the stove unattended. These are microwave recipes that she can do on her own. Yeah. Or the Instant Pot. She can use the Instant Pot now. Because, again, it's not an open flame. It's not anything like that. She just has to put the food in and set the timer. Yeah. So I got a lot of flack for that, too. And then on the communication side, where my husband is the stepdad, I told him all the time, like, and with the fibromyalgia and the brain fog and the fact that I can never say things right or remember words that I need or enunciation sometimes gets lost. It's like, let me get out my thought first. Mm-hmm. And then, and I think I said it to you too, like, let me get my thought out and then we can discuss appropriate ways that it needed to be said or how you took it or what I meant. Like we can discuss the intent behind it after, but if I don't just get it out, I'll probably sit here and stutter and stammer the whole night.
1: Yeah. I think early on in our friendship, you had said a couple of things. That I was like, what the heck? hmm um but then yeah like we we went through and and discussed you know what was actually being said and like how it was meant and everything and then it became clear um right. and now we know each other well enough that like I don't think I would react to it the same way um but definitely initially it was just gonna kind of like I don't know what you're trying to say and now it's like oh right. no I know what you're trying to say right yeah because fibro the brain fog is just so hard just
0: let me say what I need to say because it's a lot easier to discuss my intentions than it is to get the words formed yeah so, and uh, people need to recognize that as well. Cause again, like I have to, in the beginning, explain everything until you understand. And, and with parenting and over the text and whatnot, I feel like it gets easier as you get to know the person too. So it comes right back to communication. Yeah. Freaking talk to people. <laughs> explain <laughs> With an open side. mind. Yeah. Explain your side. Don't just expect them to know your side.
1: Yeah. And this is definitely where uh, my, and my, son- me and my significant other uh differ is because like if i'm going into a debate i am not going into it with the intent or the full-on belief that i am correct right most of the time <laughs> <laughs> um i'm just going into it of like this is a conversation that i find interesting let's talk about it whereas right. he believes like if you are entering into a debate it's something that you really care about and so like you're you should care enough about it that you think you're right and there should be an emotion evolved. Whereas for me, I'm like, no, there, there shouldn't be emotion in it.
0: Right. There shouldn't be. And like, I go into it with, I'm very passionate about it, but I'm not here to convince you. However, you're not going to convince me the other way either. Yeah. But like, I'll have a conversation because again, like I grew up in Utah and Texas and California and Nevada and these states. I didn't grow up on the, on the East side. I don't know culturally how much different that is. Yeah. So just talk to people. <laughs> talk to people, figure out how they grew up, figure out their life experiences, communicate with an open mind, figure things out. Like don't just automatically get offended because that really only hurts you. Yeah. Figure out how to get unoffended and understanding.
1: There's a library. I want to say it's in the Netherlands where you can go and instead of like borrowing a book, you can borrow 30 minutes of like a person. Nice. And you, you sit down and like you hear that person's like culture their opinions and everything to like broaden your knowledge on other cultures, Mm -hmm. which I think is amazing. And I think that's why Americans in general have such a hard time actually seeing the other side is because Americans on the, like, in the generalized terms of America really don't travel or travel outside of the U S right. And I think that's where a lot of the growth stunt comes from.
0: And a lot of that also, you look at the United States and our States are the size of Europe's countries. Yeah. So culture across the United States is widespread.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I got out of my hometown as soon as I could, but I know for a fact that at least half of my graduating class is still there and has never traveled outside of the state, And so these are conversations that there's no way I could have with them because in their mind, like where we went to school is the world right. and their okay. opinions are right. And yeah. you know, everybody, and it's so it. difficult. Yeah. Yep.
0: Everybody should believe me because this is how I was raised and this is where it's like in my city. And it's just not, it's never that way. No. And people, yeah, like I said, I grew up in in Utah and there was three black kids in my school and they were all brothers and then moved to Texas. And all of a sudden, I'm the only white person I see at school ever. And it's a huge culture shock. But would I have that experience if I stayed in Utah? Never a day in my life.
1: Yeah, when I was going to school, um, there were two demographics. There was the whites and the natives because I grew up on the reservation. Yeah. Um, so I... I never actually saw a black person in real life until I was a senior in high school. I went to Washington DC. Yeah. Prior to that, the only ones I had seen were on TV and we already know that, you know, TV movies, movies, media, like, yeah, it does not, it it portrays a very stereotype of all people. Um, but so it was kind of a culture, you know, it was a culture shock, but like, it was one that I had been looking forward to. And like, I'm, I'm happy to say like now, like when I was in college, um, we had one black kid. Um, but I went back home a couple of years ago and I was very happy to see that there were a lot more black families yeah. so that those people that still live there could at least get exposure to a different culture. But, um, you know, it's my significant other is part Jamaican. And so I've learned a lot about the Jamaican culture. That's just amazing. That I might not have learned otherwise. Right.
0: Well, and then you have the perception of that culture as well, which is different than the actual culture.
1: Oh, yeah. They're the nicest people. Oh, my God. I love them. Yeah,
0: they are. And again, they're also people don't don't realize that. And they're just peaceful beings. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, All right. Well, I've had to take the dog to the vet. So I think this yes. is a success.
1: I agree I think we went pretty off topic but it was it was a good conversation
0: it was we did talk about what we wanted to and then this does also like it does play into it communication talk to people about cultures exposing yourself it does still play into that adoption as well yeah so okay well thank you thank you and we'll talk next week next week We'll figure out something, but we've got, it's October. So it's domestic violence month. It's breast cancer awareness month. It's there's, there's a bunch. Yeah, there's a lot. There is a lot. So we'll see you guys all next week.
1: Yes. Well, you'll hear us. We won't see you. We'll see you if you subscribe. We'll see that you subscribe. There you go. (laughs) Thanks Rose. Or however it works on podcasts. I'm not actually sure. I don't either.
0: Just like listen and let us know that you listened somehow. It's fine. (laughs)
1: Yes. So our podcast is up in 15 minute increments on YouTube that you can subscribe to. And once we have enough subscribers, we can do the full episodes in a video. Yes. And then you said it was also on iHeart
0: Podcast now. Yes. And Spotify. Yes.
1: Perfect. And
0: I'm looking to get it on Google and Apple, hopefully within the next week. Awesome. Okay. Well, we'll we'll talk to you next time. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye.